This is Latin Pulse, a weekly analysis of news and public affairs in Latin America, brought to you through the cooperation of the School of Communications at Webster University, the global university headquartered in St. Louis, Missouri, and Link TV. And now, here's host Rick Rockwell. Bienvenidos and welcome to Latin Pulse. This week, political crackdowns and peace talks. We'll discuss the latest turmoil in Venezuela and analyze what could be the end game in Colombia's long civil war. But first, Gabriela Conchola is here with our weekly review of news from around Latin America. A federal judge in Argentina has dismissed charges against the country's president and members of her government in connection with a terrorist bombing case from 20 years ago. But political turmoil continues in connection to the controversial death of the special prosecutor who originally moved to indict the president. The country's Congress passed a bill that will dismantle the country's spy agency. President Cristina Fernández de Kirchner says rogue spies were behind the death of the prosecutor, Alberto Nisman. The head of the Argentine cabinet, Jorge Capitanich, praised the move by Congress. It's a change that is quite extraordinary. Without a doubt, this is better for our democracy. However, less than a day after that statement, Capitanich was out of a job. President Fernandez reshuffled her cabinet in the face of public criticism for how she and her ministers have handled the Nisman case. Nisman had accused the president of colluding with Iran to cover up who might have been responsible for bombing a Jewish community center. That bombing left 85 people dead. But a judge says Nisman's 350-page report on the bombing and the supposed cover-up did not meet the basic legal standards for bringing charges against the president. Tens of thousands of protesters poured into the streets of Caracas and in various provinces across Venezuela this week, calling for justice and an end to the government crackdown on the country's opposition leaders. Police shot and killed a 14-year-old boy at one protest, a bystander, not one of the protesters. Initially, protesters reacted to the arrest of the mayor of Caracas, Antonio Ledesma, by the country's secret police. But the police violence to control the protests has only caused more Venezuelans to head to the streets. Last year, dozens of protesters were killed in a series of daily protests against the government that lasted for several months. We'll have more on the Venezuelan political situation later on this program. Mexican film director Alejandro González Inaritu was the big winner of this year's Academy Awards, the Oscars. His film Birdman won Best Picture. González Inaritu took home Oscars for writing, directing, and producing. He also used his speech to make a few political points. I want to dedicate uh, uh, this award for, for my fellow Mexicans, uh, the ones who live in Mexico. Uh, I pray that we can find and build the government that we deserve and the ones that live in this country who are part of the latest generation of immigrants in this country, I just pray that they can be treated with the same dignity and respect of the ones who came before and build this incredible immigrant nation. Thank you very much. The director's comments trended on Twitter and resonated through the Mexican media. Mexico's president, Enrique Peña Nieto, responded only with congratulations for the Oscar winner. For Latin Pulse, this is Gabriela Canchola. Thanks, Gabriela. And now reaction to the political crackdown 
by the government of President Nicolas Maduro in Venezuela. Opposition groups hold the office of mayor in 76 municipalities across the country. But the arrest last week of Caracas Mayor Antonio Ledesma means 33 opposition mayors are facing trial or some sort of charge by the federal government. We asked Michael McCarthy for his analysis. McCarthy is formally part of a team that evaluated Venezuela's electoral system for the Carter Center. Currently, McCarthy is with American University Center for Latin American and Latino Studies. He joined us via Skype from Washington, D.C. It seems clear that Maduro was chosen to take a radical course of action or line of attack. And second, and I think this is the most interesting phenomena, is that uh, the international pressure um, on Maduro and the Venezuelan government seems to be ratcheted up a notch. Uh, and I think that's very notable because, for the most part, people, ob observers of the Venezuelan situation, have discounted the possibility that the government would, in fact, pay, quote, geopolitical costs for taking a radical line. I think the arrest of uh, Mayor Ledesma suggests, you know, um, a couple of things. First, I think it smells of desperation on the part of the government in terms of looking for a new bogeyman and in, in, in terms of there being a plot against the government to try and, um, you know, sort of overthrow or topple the government. Uh, the arrest itself was arbitrary. It took place in a very militarized fashion. Uh, and it is not as though Ledesma really had a sort of his full rights realized in terms of a due process before being jailed and before being detained. Uh, I think that the arrest, frankly speaking, is something of a provocation to the opposition to look for a quick fix to the solution uh, of this, you know, de gridlock political conflict in the country. And so I think it's an incitement to the opposition, and I don't think they're going to take the bait for right now in terms of trying to take a radical counter move in terms of uh, a street protest or trying to really ratchet up the pressure on the government in the streets. Uh, I, at a second level, I think that this move by the Maduro government or by, by Maduro himself, it's not clear who, in fact, you know, was in charge of this action. Uh, well, we do know that the uh, secret police, the Sabine, were the ones who actually uh, arrested him. Yes, that's right. I mean, the intellectual author. Sorry. Yes. The Sabine was the one that executed the, the order. That's that's for sure. Um, but my point being that that this is political in the sense that the, the government has a strong interest in changing uh, the topic of discussion away from the runaway inflation problems in the country, uh, the growing problems with uh, shortages of basic goods and foodstuffs. And so, you know, some people are reading this as a as a way to sort of, you know, distract attention from these social economic problems, which are ones that are more likely to have impact on popular levels of support either for the government uh, or moving to the opposition in terms of voters moving to the opposition. He's not the only elected mayor that I believe the count is something like 33 different mayors that the government has is at one time or another pressured or put under arrest. Yeah, the the Association of uh, Mayors, uh, that's, which is a loose confederation of opposition aligned mayors, issued a press release saying that there are, I think, 33 mayors who have at least open investigations against them. And this is a threat that the government sort of puts over the heads of these different mayors to gain leverage with them in different um, in different moments when they want to sort of negotiate, I think, about 
uh, decentralization funds or providing support from security forces with in, in cooperation with local municipal authorities and things like that. Um, but I think that the move against Ledesma could, I fear, uh, be uh, the beginning of a broader crackdown uh, on members of the opposition. There, there been, there's been a lot of discussion about the possibility of getting rid of the immunity or, or stripping uh, Julio Borges, the, um, a member of Primero Justicia, First Justice Party, of his parliamentary immunity. Um, that seems to me to be, still be on the table as, not, as a possibility. Uh, and I think that further actions along these lines uh, could be forthcoming. We see the reaction to the Ledesma arrest uh, really resonating in the international community. Even notice Scandinavian countries, which rarely comment about Venezuela, uh, condemning this arrest this week. Yeah, not only Scandinavian countries, also you saw uh, strident criticism of the of the event of the government by sectors of the Latin American left and even the Spanish left. Uh, just to cite a couple of examples on that front, uh, Isabel Allende, the daughter of Salvador, Salvador Allende, the president of the Chilean Senate, uh, called on the Chilean government to show uh, its concern in louder form about this action. Uh, that was very, very significant. I thought Juan Pablo Letelier, the son of Orlando Letelier, also a member of the Chilean Socialist Party and a senator in the Senate there, uh, made, made statements or echoed the statements of Isabel Allende. And then in Spain, something that seemed almost uh, impossible to happen took place where Pablo Iglesias, the leader of Podemos, the upstart po um, populist party in Spain, uh, also criticized the detention of Elisma, saying that he's never going to stand up for uh, the arbitrary detention of an elected mayor, that he's not for that. And there have been a, there are a lot of ties between Podemos and some sectors of Chavismo, so this, I think, is, is important because the idea that criticism of the government could be coming from left-wing circles is, I think, a new element. Uh, Bill Clinton also on his Twitter, uh, the same night that Ledesma was detained, called on Leopoldo Lopez and all political prisoners in Venezuela to be released without delay. Um, and and I think Peru recently, I think last night, in fact, uh, you know, the 25th of February in the evening, has called on UNASOR to move faster in terms of putting together a delegation of foreign ministers to go to Caracas and try and um, mediate and, and, and sort of tamp down some of these pressures. So we, we see UNASOR, the organization of South American countries getting involved in this particular case. Uh, the Maduro government has asked them in the past to uh, get involved in, in these particular issues. Uh, I'm, I'm wondering how you see their involvement, because if you listen to Telesur, the pan-South American 24-7 television network, uh, which is also available online, if you listen to Telesur, you get a, the point of view that this visit from UNASUR is there to support the Maduro government. It's a tricky issue, so let's try and look at multiple the multiple layers here. First, you know, Maduro requested, or at least proposed the idea of UNASUR via the Secretary General Ernesto Samper, the former president of Colombia. He proposed the idea that UNASUR mediate between Venezuela and the United States. That was Maduro's most recent proposal on the UNOSOR front. And, and we need to mention that the United States is part of this whole idea of a coup plot that Ledesma is connected right. to because right. the United States is supposedly behind this 
coup. Yes, that's Argentina. right. I mean, uh, Maduro even has gone so far as to directly accuse Vice President Joe Biden as being directly implicated in this, in sort of planning this coup effort. Um, and, and so, you know, what Maduro seems to want in on that front is to sort of bring a lot of pressure and attention to the uh, to the friction in the relationship between the United States and Venezuela to then look for a golden moment of opportunity where he can sort of make things better on the U.S.-Venezuela front to try and promote a thaw after there being a big conflict. Um, but I don't think that's likely to happen uh, for a number of reasons, uh, mostly because, you know, the bandwidth of the United States is taken up at the moment by dealing with, you know, the thaw in U.S.-Cuban relations. It's not going to be able to have the time or the resources to work on the on the Venezuela front at the moment, and it's not nearly as important of an issue because the rest of Latin America is is is, is to a certain extent exhausted with the Venezuela issue, and they're very happy to see the U.S. trying to open with Cuba. Now, returning to the UNASUR front, Maduro's proposal was that UNASUR mediate between the U.S. and Venezuela. This seemed bizarre to most people, uh, especially because uh, Secretary General Samper doesn't even have a visa to travel to the United States. He has a very troubled history with um, um, his personal relationship with the United States because he had his visa stripped when he was president of Colombia in the, early, in, in the mid-1990s. Uh, also, UNASUR doesn't really have the mandate to work along those lines of, of working between the United States and an individual South American country. Um, but... You're correct that that Telesor and and sort of sympathetic um, you know opinion makers in the world are suggesting that a visit by Unasor would be at the solicitation of the Maduro government. Interestingly, this time I don't see their visit if it does in fact happen as being as taking place on the terms proposed and controlled by the Maduro government. It seems to me that Unasor uh, recognizes that. Its role last year was helpful, but yet inadequate to dealing with a political crisis and diffusing the political crisis in Venezuela. Now, I don't know how far they're willing to go. It is true that as a as a as a body, UNASUR basically has to work uh, according to the requests of incumbent governments of, of of presidents. It is to a certain extent a club of presidents in that regard. But my point is that I think you're seeing patience run thin. Uh, among the other member nations of UNASUR uh, and, and uh, on the Venezuela issue. And, and there's interest now, I think, to see this working group delegation of the Colombian, Brazilian and Ecuadorian foreign ministers play a different role in trying to get the opposition to have its, its demands, uh, in fact, heard and, and responded to at an eventual um, sort of negotiating table or set of talks. Their patience is running thin for what reason? Is it the reason that the Venezuelans have crossed some sort of line that they're not really representing a, a democratic government when they start throwing members of the opposition in jail for arbitrary reasons? Yeah, I think that I think that's that, that the Ledesma arrest did cross a new line. Now, some people think that that's that's sort of making too much out of an individual example in, in the sense that this government has been crossing the line for some time, according to some criticism. And I think the difference here is that when you when you think back um, to, say, the period between 2002 to 2008 uh, or, or around that in Venezuelan politics era, during that period, the, the international community, at least significant parts of it, gave 
Chavez and the Chavez government the benefit of the doubt that it was, you know, threatened by U.S. imperialism, that it was threatened by meddlesome U.S. policy. But with the United States, uh, you know, beginning to open negotiations to normalize relations with Cuba, this has moved the ground and this has pulled the rug out from underneath the feet of the Maduro government in terms of its criticism of U.S. imperialism. So you have a very different international moment in that regard. And the benefit of that, the doubt is to a certain extent moving from in favor of the Venezuelan government to perhaps in favor of the U.S. government. So I'm I'm wondering a bit about Antonio Ledesma, the mayor of Caracas. I've talked to some um, pro-Chavista sources this week, and, and they say he may have had this coming, that he was involved in the coup in 2002, and it's likely that, that he was doing some sort of work to try to remove President Maduro, that he was involved in, this, in at least supporting the street protests and the Salida movement of last year. There's no doubt that Antonio Ledesma is, is, should be considered a, quote, radical within the opposition political movement. He's is played a very prominent role in the street protests and demonstrations last year. Uh, he signed a document on February 12th, the anniversary of uh, the start of the protest movement last year uh, and also Venezuela's National Youth Day, calling for a transition accord, which is quite clearly – an effort to stir up the pot, if you will, in terms of thinking about how to get rid of the Maduro government in the near term. There's no doubt that the, he is part of that crew. Um, the problem is that in Venezuela, the rule of law and the justice system are practically broken. And so therefore, when these when these criticisms or when the government executes these arrests and things like that, they're not viewed as part of a, a, an institutional or state policy of investigating um, people who have committed crimes, they're instead viewed as as political. They're they're viewed as political manipulations of the justice system. So whether or not Ledesma had standing um, investigations open against him is is to a certain extent not important because no one people generally do not perceive uh, this arrest as the result of. You no, know, a long-standing investigation. Rather, it responds to short-term political goals and conditions. Thank you, Michael McCarthy, a research fellow at American University's Center for Latin American and Latino Studies, joining us on Latin Pulse via Skype from Washington, D.C. Thanks. My pleasure, Rick. If you want to read more about the political turmoil in Venezuela, you can check out the AULA blog, the blog of the Center for Latin American and Latino Studies at American University. You can find the blog at AULABlog, all one word, dot net. That's AULABlog, dot net. From the growing problem in Venezuela, we move across the border to Colombia and what could be the final stage of its long civil war. For that discussion, stay with us. This is Tom Scared for the Borgen Project. Each year, nearly two million children die from preventable diseases. Each day, 30,000 people die from hunger. 500 each hour are children. The Borgen Project is turning this around. We need your help. To learn more, go to borgenproject.org. That's B-O-R-G-E-N project.org. This week, former U.N. Secretary General Kofi Annan traveled to Cuba. 
He wanted to lend his voice to diplomatic efforts to end Colombia's civil war, a war that has dragged on for 51 years. This past week, the United States also designated a special envoy to aid in the talks. Cuba and Norway have facilitated the peace process with negotiations that began in 2012. And Colombia's president, Juan Manuel Santos, promises the war will end this year. At least 220,000 people have died in the conflict. We talked to Adam Isaacson of the Washington Office on Latin America, WOLA, about perhaps the final stages of the conflict and the peace talks. We reached him via Skype in Washington, D.C. I mean, I, I find it hard to believe that it's happening so quickly, to be honest. I mean, what, two, more than two years doesn't sound that quickly, but, um, you know, they, they have an agenda of six points, if you count that final point of how to ratify everything. And they only have agreement locked down on three of those six points, and already we're talking about a ceasefire. That surprises me, but I think what really broke the logjam in Colombia was what was actually the worst crisis the, the process has experienced. In the second half of November, the FARC um, captured, some would say kidnapped, but captured a general, the first time they'd ever had somebody of that rank, who had just wandered into their midst in, in uh, the department of Chocó. Um, the, park, the FARC, you know, for in, the, in the 1990s and 2000s, they were holding military officers for 10, 12, 13 years to demand a prisoner exchange and, and you know, holding them in horrible conditions um, and, and not letting them go. They let General um, um, uh, Ruben Dario Asate leave after two weeks. They handed him over because they wanted this peace process to go on. They had that choice, their highest ranking ever captive or, the, or, or, or losing the peace process, and they chose the peace process. That, plus the arrival in Havana of most of the FARC's top leadership now, and most of its uh, hardcore military leaders as well, um, has made it pretty evident that the FARC really does want this accord. Um, the whole line for most of those two years is, is the FARC really just jerking us around, or is this, or, or do they really have will to peace? And I think they've shown will to peace, and that really did change at least attitudes within the Santos government. What also changed it, of course, was um, uh, December 20th, the FARC declared a unilateral indefinite ceasefire. Not a ceasefire over the holidays and they go back to fighting. They have not launched an offensive operation since January 20th, and that's been um, certified by three different official observers, official and think tank observers. Um, not since single, December the 20th? Since December 20th. They may still be out there recruiting miners, or they may have laid a couple landmines, they may be extorting people, which is all very serious and will have to stop soon if we're going to have a bilateral ceasefire, but no attacks on military or civilian targets, which is pretty remarkable. And the FARC are saying right now, um, we have no plans to do that unless the military keeps attacking us, and they keep documenting every attack that they get from the military, which on their part has been a brilliant way really, I mean, let's say it, a really crafty way to get something that they wanted, which was a ceasefire. The military and actually the Santos government had been refusing to have a ceasefire in place until there was an accord or close enough to an accord that it didn't matter um, on the argument that, uh, you know, the FARC take advantage of ceasefires to strengthen themselves. Um, but no, on, on January 14th, President Santos got up in his televised New Year's address and said, I'm giving orders to my negotiators to uh, hash out a ceasefire with the FARC um, next time they talk. Um, now, hasn't the Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia, the FARC, haven't they in the past, in this two-year negotiating period, haven't they also had some unilateral ceasefires in the hope that they could push the Colombian government to this point and those attempts at that have failed? 
Um, they, they had unilateral ceasefires over the Christmas holidays and then during the election season in Colombia, which um, I don't know. They were probably trying. They, they never explicitly said to the Colombian government, come join us. Um, but they, I think they did get some propaganda value when the Colombian government uh, or the Colombian military bombed some of their encampments and stuff. And they said, we're not going to fight back. We're in a ceasefire. Um, what they did show, probably most importantly during those ceasefires, was that they still had command and control. Um, one thing that has been doubted about um, the FARC is whether there's going to be a lot of dissidences and rogue elements and, and units that just go and ignore what the, leader, the top leadership in Havana tells them to do. But for the most part, there had been exceptions. The current one, there aren't any, but there had been exceptions in past um, truces where, where some elements of the FARC um, did launch a few attacks, but it was remarkably few. I mean, the, the, the groups that monitored this sort of thing said that the number of FARC attacks went down normally about 90%, which really dispelled a lot of doubts about whether the FARC still was able to command its, you know, its muchachos all around the country. We, we've talked in, on this program before about the CIA aid programs mm -hmm. to um, blow up command and control, frankly, uh, of the FARC and, and how those things uh, were exposed by the Washington Post. And so that is interesting to see that that, that particular program hasn't um, been completely successful. At this point in the peace process, isn't it in the Colombian government's interest to help the FARC maintain some command and control? Because if, say, if by the end of the year they're starting to demobilize, you're actually going to need all these mid-level commanders to make sure everybody shows up um, to demobilize. You don't want them dead. Um, which is really strangely paradoxical, although we were talking about this with a, with a U.S. military official recently who had served in Iraq, and he said, yeah, well, we made the big mistake of disbanding the Iraqi army, whereas they could have actually helped with the transition um, uh, to peace. Uh, so you know, at this point, it's not in the Colombian government's interest necessarily to just, if they have intel about where a FARC leader is, to just take him out the way, the way they were doing. The government of Juan Manuel Santos, the president of Colombia, you mentioned there were three points that were still unresolved. Is that government holding up on those three points and what are the the hurdles that are keeping this peace from finally happening the three points are, are actually some of the hardest um but they're making progress they've really since uh, about june they've been discovering discovering they've been discussing conflict victims um and how to um meet their needs uh, as well as they can including just acts of contrition and, and reparations getting the truth out about what happened to victims um t five five groups of 12 victims each uh, victims of all groups in Colombia's conflict have actually come to Havana and met with the negotiators. After that, and they've already begun discussing this simultaneously, they moved to the last substantive topic, which is um, ending the conflict. And the two big parts of ending the conflict are handing over weapons and demobilizing, what's that going to look like? And then transitional justice, what's that going to look like? Handing over weapons, you're not going to have like pictures taken of FARC leaders handing over their rifles to army soldiers. That looks like a, a surrender. And also the FARC, having had you know demobilized members and members of tied political parties killed in massive ways in the past, are probably going to insist on having access to weapons at least for a while. That's going to be very hard for a lot of Colombian opinion to swallow, but you're just, I mean, the FARC are going to have to simply promise to abandon or put beyond use its weapons, hopefully in a way that is internationally verifiable at least. Um, having so an the international UN may mission. be involved in that or, or other groups? That's the big thing on disarmament and demobilization, not only to, to verify um, disarmament, but also just simply to protect FARC members. You're going to need internationals. Um, it could be the UN. The UN has the longest you know, history of doing this. The OAS actually has the best presence on the ground. It could be UNASUR or a mixture of friendly states or a hybrid of everything I just mentioned. It sounds like you're confident that this is going to get done in the next year, that 
we'll see this finished by the end of 2015. If I had to bet money, I'd say they'd have an accord by the end of 2015. I've talked to some people involved in the process uh, lately who think that it's not even beyond the pale that a referendum to actually settle, to, to, to ratify what has been accorded could actually occur concurrent with the October local elections in Colombia. That seems a little soon for me, if, if not by the end of 2015, very early in 2016. Uh, and to be honest, if it's much longer than that, Colombian public opinion may turn against it. If there actually is a bilateral ceasefire, um, you know, peace does not break out. Or even if there's a peace accord, let's say that, uh, peace does not break out the very next day. Um, in fact, what worries me, the tensest moment in Colombia will be between the signing of an accord and the ratification and of the accord, the beginning of implementation. What happens in between there is going to be the tensest moment because that's when all the spoilers come out. Thank you so much, Adam Isaacson of the Washington Office on Latin America. Wola, our guest on Latin Pulse. Thanks. Thank you, Rick. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for joining us on this edition of Latin Pulse. If you'd like to send us your suggestions or comments, you may leave us a message online via SoundCloud, or you may write us via email. You can find us at latinpulse at gmx.com. That's latinpulse, all one word, at gmx.com. If you're looking for earlier editions of Latin Pulse, we're available in various locations on the web, including iTunes, Facebook, and Flipboard. You can also find us in the Brazilian online game, Minimundos. To see the Latin Pulse archives of video programs on Latin America, you can check out Link TV's website, www.linktv, all one word, dot org, and then slash Latin Pulse, also all one word. That's www.linktv.org slash Latin Pulse. Thanks for joining us this week on Latin Pulse for our entire team, production assistant Gabriela Conchola and producer Jim Singer. I'm Rick Rockwell. Escucha nosotros vez. Gracias por su tiempo. Latin Pulse is produced at the School of Communications at Webster University, the global university, headquartered in St. Louis, Missouri, with music copyright support through Webster University and Link TV. This program is copyright 2015 Las Rocas Productions.